0: Happy Sunday after Easter, everyone. I am very excited to continue the celebration of Jesus' victory over death and sin by his resurrection from that tomb that we kind of marked last week. Um, And so part of our role, at least I believe, we believe as a church, is to join in the work that we see all throughout the New Testament letters um, and to help propel and guide you as the church into the mission of God that is right here for us right now, all right? Um, Jesus' death on a cross, it was not just a canceling of our debt before a holy God. He did not just die so that we wouldn't go to the bad place, like we talked about in the Ephesians class today. Um, but his his death accomplished a number of things. It's almost like looking through a prism, and like based off which angle and how the light hits it, you see something different, right? Um, his death did accomplish that as far as canceling our debt before a holy God, but it also Freed us from the powers of death and sin, so that we could live into all that God has for us as His holy temple. And that's part of our job as a church to help propel you and empower you and guide you into that. To help um, to help you see what God has for you to walk into as the people of God. To help show you what it looks like to not live. In the powers of slavery to death and sin any longer, but to believe the good news that life is abundant and we can experience it right here, right now, as the people of God. One person who I think grasped this really well was Peter. Um, If you don't know, Peter was not only one of Jesus's 12 disciples, but he was kind of in that posse that Jesus chose that was like his closest three. I don't know what criteria Jesus used, but Peter, um, he had tons of like moments of highs and lows all throughout his life, right? You see him do something awesome, then the next second, you see Jesus saying like, "Get behind me Satan." right? Um, he is someone who I wildly identify with just because I am an external processor. I think Peter was, too. at least it seems like he was. Um, but Peter, the last time we saw him in the Easter story, um, Jesus had appeared to the disciples, but before that, Peter is denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows, right, like Jesus predicts. Jesus says, you will deny me three times. And Peter, this this young girl, right, so like the least threatening person in ancient Near Eastern society, recognizes Peter, and she says, hey, that guy was with Jesus, and he denies Jesus three times. Um, So that's the last time we kind of see him. This is where it picks up on the other side of the resurrection in John's gospel, John chapter 21, verse 15, it says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And that's our story this morning from the word of the Lord out of John's gospel. So I want to ask, can you imagine like, what Peter must have been feeling, thinking, experiencing in that moment? The last time we saw him, like I said, Peter was denying Jesus three times. He was calling down curses because a little girl accused him of knowing Jesus. And he said, like, basically, anything in my power to do it, I do not know this guy. This Jesus who now we know had risen from the dead. This Jesus who Peter watched perform miracle after miracle after miracle. This Jesus who called Peter to follow him and Peter did for years. This Jesus who you had chosen your own self-preservation as you betrayed him. But you didn't just betray him, you betrayed the trust he gave you, the friendship, the love, you stomped on his kindness and you took advantage of the state he was in at the hands of the Roman Empire. And now this Jesus appears to you and says that he has work for you to do. Can you imagine that? I'm not sure how the Easter season was for you. I know one thing that's common for me is that there were many Easter's in my life where it was like, all right, this is the time where I'm finally gonna do it. And then it's like I uh, had this big emotional Easter Sunday And the Sunday after Easter, it's like reality has set back in, and all of a sudden I feel twice as bad about all the promises I made to God about the things I was going to do or not going to do ever again, right? And so maybe you're kind of like me, or at least I've been most of my life, and imagining how Peter must have felt knowing that he let the God of the universe down wasn't a difficult imagination exercise for you. Maybe you're familiar with that. Maybe you do live in the constant tension of wanting to do better, but feeling like you can't do better for God or that God expects more of you than you're able to deliver yourself. See, I think that we can learn a couple things from this story about how God deals with us, especially in the wake of us betraying him, turning from him, wandering from him. One of my favorite songs, Come Thou Fount, you know that line where it says like, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, bind my wandering heart to thee, like that just gets me. You know, like the the songs that just get you? Um, This is, hopefully at least, a teaching that is to those whose hearts, like Peter's, are prone to wander when things get difficult. Um, So with that being said, first, first thing we can see from this interaction of Jesus and Peter is that God's ability to see and restore who we were created to be is, our, is greater than our ability to mess it up. It's really, really simple, okay? No matter what we think we've messed up, how great the betrayal may have been, how unworthy we actually are to step into the new life Jesus is trying to give us, in the kingdom of God, mercy triumphs over judgment. Romans 5 Paul says that where sin abounds, where sin is plentiful, where sin is everywhere, whether it's in the lives of those around you or in your life or in your habits or whatever, that grace abounds more plentifully. So here we see a picture of a Savior whose grace is greater than Peter's ability to mess it up. We would do well to remember that as the church of Jesus Christ. Number two, the questions that we need to hear May insult our ego. We still need to be asked them, though. I find it kind of like ironic or funny that in this account, Peter's genuinely hurt or insulted that Jesus asks him three times. Isn't that an interesting detail for John to include? That like Peter was like offended that Jesus asked him three times? Have you ever imagined being offended by Jesus like this? Never mind that three is like. Kind of a big deal when it comes to the Hebrew people and it comes to numbers, right? Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Kind of a big thing for them. Or maybe like Jesus was trying to redeem your three denials. I don't know if that was going through Peter's head. I have no idea. It's all speculation. All I know is that Jesus asks Peter a question and he asks him it three times. And despite Peter being offended, Jesus in his wisdom decided it was what Peter needed to hear. I don't know why that is. I wish I did. The first point, and I still believe it because I made it five seconds ago, is that God's kindness and grace to redeem us and restore us is unmatched by any sin we could ever conjure up on our own. That's true. Fundamentally, I believe that is so true. But that does not mean that we come to God with ego, believing that we have all we need on our own and that this life everlasting thing we actually have figured out and don't really need him for. See, we humbly approach the presence of the Savior and we accept that in God's wisdom that there will be convictions and promptings that are done in the kindness of God to lead us to more life, to life abundantly, to greater richness and joy in Christ. You see, Jesus loved Peter enough to believe that what he needed in order to step into who he was making him into was worth asking, even when the question hurt his feelings. Jesus hurt someone's feelings in this passage. And so we have to accept that sometimes what God is leading us into or into giving up, that sometimes it's going to hurt our feelings, sometimes it's going to be painful. Sometimes God is more interested in helping us break free from destructive sin patterns than coddling a fragile ego. I think God is interested in producing resilient disciples ready to face all that the powers and principalities of evil are throwing against us. I think that's a word that we desperately need to hear because the truth is is that once we have had our identity restored in Jesus, my next point is that our identity always comes with meaningful work. I don't know what season of life you're in, whether you feel like there's no meaningful work for you, whether you feel like meaningful work has passed you by or it's somewhere in the future. We all have meaningful work in the kingdom of God. One of the first things Jesus does when he asks Peter if he loves him is he says, feed my sheep. He entrusts him with work to do. Now, This work in the kingdom of God that I'm talking about, I believe that we all have a role to play in bringing the goodness and beauty of heaven to earth, okay? Writing all that is wrong in the world. In this kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is king of, there is no more death, no more enmity, no more strife. Anything associated with sin is done away with forever. And our identity is that we have the meaningful work of living that into reality, of all the broken places in our world, bringing the beauty of God into them. See, I believe that God is actually interested in making a difference through you and through the way you have been gifted and designed and beautifully positioned with the people in your life. See, I think Jesus actually wants to change like whatever sphere we're involved in because we're there and because we follow him. This is incredible dignity and, and trust that God bestows upon us. God bestows it upon Peter, too. He doesn't say, Peter, like, prove it to me. He doesn't say, Peter, I need to know that you really love me because you just denied me three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, okay, go feed my sheep. And it seems to communicate that sometimes our transformation is intrinsically tied to actually putting our foot to the ground and doing the work of Jesus, See, for Jesus to be alive on this side of the tomb, it means that we have work to do to tear down the kingdom of our enemy who's interested in using things like anxiety and paranoia and insecurity and hatred and violence to thwart every good thing God's trying to do in the world. I am extremely blessed to know what so many of you do in your lives. And there are examples of all of you using your talents, your passions, your gifts to bring the kingdom of God into the spheres where you live. And it is a beautiful thing. Like it's one of the things I'm most thankful of. And so I don't know what the call is for you, whether it is washing dishes like Brother Lawrence did or whether it's crafting sermons. It doesn't have to be one or the other. In fact, the majority of the disciples of Jesus have gone on to follow Jesus and make a difference in incredibly, seemingly insignificant ways. But I don't think Jesus is any less proud of them. I don't think Jesus is any like bothered by the fact that everyone has to lead a small group or preach in a church or lead worship or anything like that. I think Jesus made you intentionally, and his desire in giving you a new identity is to see you walk in it and bring the kingdom of God to earth. Then number four, this passage seems to indicate that what Jesus restores Peter to is in his best interest but it will not look like that if we have the wrong perspective. For whatever reason, when John records this passage, he seems to indicate that Jesus knew something about what awaited Peter. I don't know if you're familiar with church history, but Peter was crucified. That was his death. He chose to be hung upside down out of reverence for Jesus But the end of this passage seems to indicate that Jesus knew what was lying in front of Peter to walk in. And yet Jesus still commands Peter to follow him. No false hope, no seeming doubt about whether this life was actually better for him or not. Just an honest confession of the truth and then a command to follow him anyways. This is a radically different picture of Jesus than I sometimes try to hold on to for myself. Sometimes I'm much more comfortable with a picture of a Jesus who would never ask anything hard of me, who would never hurt my feelings or do anything to insult my ego. But the truth is, is that we get a picture of a risen Lord who knows that the implications of his resurrection are that we do not need to fear anything in this life, even the end of it as a death itself. And that's true because where Jesus has delivered us into, which is the kingdom of heaven, is ultimately worth everything and then some. We confess to believe that. Listen to the words of this same Peter as he was writing to a church who was experiencing heavy persecution in Asia some years later. This is in 1 Peter chapter 1. He's writing to a church who, like I said, is extremely persecuted. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the Peter who lived through the death of his hope, literally. He saw Jesus die, he saw the hope of the Jewish people die. And yet now he is writing to Christians experiencing persecution and saying that as long as Jesus is alive and and risen from the tomb, your hope is also. The inheritance that we are promised in Jesus, the day that all of us in here yearn for and long for, The life that we're dying to experience and know, that is guarded by God's own power, and nothing can taint it, nothing can make it perish or spoil or fade. This is as permanent and certain as those words can ever mean. And not only that, but that is cause for us as the church to rejoice. See, for a church who is experiencing persecution and what Peter calls grief and all kinds of trials— they get to rejoice together as a family because of the reality he just named. That nothing can change where they're headed. And this is a reality that as Christians at times, they've been mocked for. They've been called crazy for believing in. They've been called escapists at times. But they are a people who live by faith. And faith is really important to God. I don't know if you've read a lot of scripture, but it's kind of one of the big deals in the New Testament is like a life by faith, right? If you look at people like Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness because of his faith, right? Yeah. So you'll see that faith for the people of Israel was a really, really big deal to God. And this is even with a backdrop of inconceivable sin in their lives. Like God was willing to work with them because of faith, Despite sin in their life. And I think God wants us to have faith that is genuine and refined and deep and robust. But not because I think God is like some cosmic narcissist or like he has ego problems or something like that. But I think that because God knows that the greater our faith is in Jesus the greater our ability to rejoice in all circumstances and to be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy that gives us life despite any circumstance we could ever live through. I think faith is directly correlated to that. See, we have the unique privilege as God's children of getting the chance to believe that we have the opportunity to rejoice in God no matter what's happening in our lives. No matter what we're experiencing No matter what is going on in the lives of those around us, we get to rejoice because where we are headed, what is ours in Jesus, is imperishable. Nothing can defile it. Nothing can touch it. Nothing that we could ever experience in this life will change that. Now, this doesn't mean that we get to bypass emotions or seasons of grief or lament or sorrow or that those things aren't healthy. Jesus modeled those for us. Jesus was familiar with those. He was a man acquainted with grief. That being said, um, it does mean that because of who we are, which is inheritors of the kingdom of God by the grace of Jesus, that we can actually be people who are filled with hope and joy. I want you to ask if you can picture yourself as a person of hope and joy. I don't know about you, I'm almost 30, not quite, 28, but um, life is a lot busier and more difficult than I thought it would be when I was 28. Um, hope and joy just seem like so much work. I don't know about y'all, but problems were so much easier to deal with when I had like this youthful vigor that was like, oh yeah, that's whatever, I'll just move on, Right? Now it's like I find myself dwelling on things, and it's like, why am I still mad? I just, I can't even muster up the energy to like not be upset about this. It just comes so natural. How was I so happy all the time as a kid? You see, I think that what Peter is saying to this church is that the reality of Jesus being raised from the dead and conquering death, the freedom in the life that he is offering us, the purpose that that same Jesus gave Peter to walk in really meaningful work, including the work he's doing right now by writing this letter, that all of that means that we can actually learn to delight in and find hope in and rejoice in God because God is that good. Can you believe that? I know it's difficult. I know that there are circumstances that say otherwise. But God himself has promised to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And even if we throw it all away like Peter, we too can be restored with purpose and dignity. Because that is who our Savior is. That's who he's always been. That's who he's always promised to be. Jackie Hill Perry is a, a theologian. If you don't know her story, she felt strongly about repenting of her life apart from God, where she chose to pursue whatever she thought was right in a variety of different avenues. And uh, she chose to turn from a lot of those things and seek God. And she says this as she reflects on the things that once held her affection and were the source of her happiness or joy as she understood it. She says this, Could it be that God would not have me going about the rest of my life believing that these lesser forms of love were the real thing? Perhaps his love, this love that he filled to the brim with was pouring over into his dealings with me. And perhaps this love was compelling him on the basis of grace, which is an undeserved love, to help me see that every person, every place or every that I loved more than him could not keep its promise to love me back eternally. You see, in Jesus, we have someone who has promised to love us eternally, no matter what. And that is worth rejoicing in. And as trite as it may sound, choosing to rejoice, being a person capable of rejoicing in difficult circumstances, I think is something God wants for us. I think God wants us to be a resilient group of people, not because God wants to punish us if we get afraid, but because there is so much more life to be found in this way of doing it if we will just try it. I think God doesn't want us to leave all that he has for us unclaimed. I think God's just that good and that kind and that wise. And he knows things about life that we haven't learned yet. I don't know if you have um, ever had an experience where you're watching someone talk about something. I, um, I had this happen to me kind of frequently. I'm with college students a lot. Hey, y'all. I love y'all. Um, but I hear college students talk about, like, relationships a lot. And I remember, like, hearing them say things and being like, oh, I remember when I said this about this person in my life who I was dating, and like, man, it felt so true. And now, I've been married for five years, and I'm like, that that was the least true thing I could have ever said, <laughs> right? It's just my perspective was so limited. All that I knew was all that I had gathered in my wisdom of being alive for 19 years, and it was heavily influenced by the people that I was around and what exposure I had to various things. But despite what I thought I didn't know everything yet. I definitely still do not. And I think that God knows that like we are wired to think to operate with life like we do know everything. And I think this at least partially is God's way of saying like hey, come to me and trust me and I will show you a way of life that is more rich and more deep and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. Sure it looks different. Sure to some people it's going to look absolutely ludicrous. But I think it's for your good. And you can actually do it. I think if we um, have trouble believing it, we should look at the life of Peter, who said that his own literal life was worth giving to this movement and worth following. So um, with that being said, uh, I will pray for us. And then since I am not feeling super great, I have asked Matt to serve communion. So if you would like to receive communion from from Matt, you can. Um, We did this last week Um, it's no more holy or special or anything. It's just sometimes when we use our bodies in different ways, it's just really helpful to like help get information from our heads to our hearts. Um, And so, if you would like to receive communion, um, and just with the posture of your body, you can come up and Matt will break the bread and give you the juice, um, and he'll serve it to you. If not, that's totally okay. Um, Like I said, it's not any less holy or God's not like upset with you or anything like that for that. Um, You can go get communion in the back. Um, But I'll pray for us, and then you'll be dismissed to communion where you'll have some time to gather around the tables, um, talk about this, talk about joy, talk about grief and trials, all that fun stuff. So, does that sound good? We made it. To anyone who was hoping they would get to preach because I wouldn't be able to make it through this, I'm sorry. Um, but um, I'm glad we got to do this together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Um, we, know that, we know that you are good, God. Um, sometimes we know it more cognitively than experientially, but I pray that you would help us to experience that goodness. Whatever form that takes, um, Jesus, we want to be your witnesses in the world of your goodness. Like nothing is more powerful than a witness saying, This is what I've seen, this is what I've tasted, this is what I've experienced. Come see it yourself. So, Jesus, as scary as it may be, I pray that you would make us into people of great joy, that you'd make us into people of great faith. Um, to love you and to trust you despite what um, you inspired Peter to write, having experienced griefs and all different kinds of trials at times. So, Father, um, help us to step into that living hope that you are offering us. We pray these things in your name.